welcome to a quick Conversations of Change podcast with Dr. Jen Fram. We have a change chat with one of the leaders in the change management field. And welcome back. This week, um, we've got the pleasure of speaking with Bronte Jackson. And I was really keen to have Bronte as a guest of Change Chat because when I first met Bronte, I discovered that Bronte was a social anthropologist. And I don't think I'd actually ever met one of those before. So welcome, Bronte, and thank you for uh, agreeing to have a chat with us today. Thanks, Jen. So first question, tell me, social anthropology, what is it? Right. Um, look, social anthropology is actually the study of culture and it's the study of how people make meaning or attribute meaning to their environment. Um, to, to create a culture, we don't all sit down and write down our cultural values and put them in a plan and go, yep, that's it. Uh, we all attribute meaning to our environment in a myriad of ways so that we have a shared agreement about what things mean and what behaviour means. So social anthropology is the study of the process of how people do that. Mm-hmm. And so to become a social anthropologist, that was a university degree, um, yeah. a particular discipline? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it combines, uh, yes, there is a social anthropology uh, university degree, which I graduated in, along with some sociology and politics and mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's usually field research mm-hmm. involved, which I haven't done formally, but I feel like I've done quite a lot of field <laughs> research um, in corporate land, so that kind of um, yeah makes up for it, I think. Your, your whole world is uh, <laughs> organisational ethnographies, <Exactly>. right? Exactly. <laughs> Parties, you know, overhearing coffee conversations on the weekend and cafes. Yep, it's all grist for the mill. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. So um, now you are um, one of our very experienced change practitioners um, with uh, a significant period of of experience in organisational change. Tell me, what does having a a social anthropology lens bring to your change work? How does that perhaps Mm -hmm. differ from someone who doesn't have a background in social anthropology? Hmm. Yeah. Well, look, I think uh, social anthropologists have a couple of key principles which are really important to them and which underpin the academic um, discipline of social anthropology, which is over 200 years old. Um, So some of those things are um, working with symbols and, um, yeah, working with symbols and the power and meaning of symbols in social change. Uh, the second one would be um, the idea that the people who uh, you want to work with on a change are the people or the people who are impacted by the change are the are best placed to design and implement the change. Mm-hmm. That's a long-held tenant of um, principle of social anthropology. And the other one is being iterative uh, and working with people in that collaborative, iterative way. Um, I'd say they're the three kind of top things um, and I can give you some examples of how I might use them. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us more. Yeah. So... um, 
in a change context, if I understand that what, what meaning people have attributed to their roles, to the way they work, to the kind of organisation they work in, uh, if we understand that and then when we say to them, well, everything's going to change or we want to change something, we have to understand that we're actually affecting people's um, ability to be successful. Um, because people attribute lots of meaning to the way they work, even the position that they work in their desk, who they talk to on a daily basis. So changing those things is not um, a, a kind of simple and easy thing. It actually has deep impact into what people think about themselves and how they operate in the world. Um, so it also makes it really important to understand what what the change is and to be able to communicate that very, very clearly so that people can then attribute their meaning to the new world and what it means. Um, also, symbols, you, I use symbols a lot in change because symbols actually motivate and or terrorise us at a much deeper level than, uh, you know, a business case or a plan or your rational mind. So you can use symbols and, and we use them every day um, a lot of resistance to change really is about people saying that um, what I'm hearing is that um, I'm not going to get any support to be able to be successful or to contribute or um, I'm going to have to wait until there's a formal email from HR or the project before I know anything about my new world. So um, I guess, you know, some of this sounds fairly negative but uh, I just wanted to give an example in a second of how um, symbols are really important in the workplace and how they motivate or not. So I'll give you an example. I, was, I think I've mentioned before I worked at the United Nations for many years. Um, it's a very hierarchical organisation and um, how much carpet you had in your office denoted your uh, level mm-hmm. in the hierarchy. And your level in the hierarchy was really important to communicate because it meant in a group situation your idea was either a suggestion or it was the way forward. Uh, and if you had a square of carpet in your office... Mm-hmm. Uh, it denoted that you were at a certain high level and that was really important. So when people came to your office, they wouldn't have to ask you, you wouldn't have to say anything. But And what really intrigued me was when I got to work in an office with a bit of carpet in it and I was only a lowly contractor from the outside and I was just put in that space because that was, was available to me. And the difference between when people met me outside of the office and when they met me in the office was quite a powerful indicator of how symbols uh, can motivate human behaviour or change human behaviour, much more so than kind of, as I said, rational plans and business plans. So the way we use that in change is, for example, the symbolism of senior management leading and acting and being seen to visibly lead change is far more important than a really well-crafted email from HR or the project manager. Mm-hmm. Um, that will have a much deeper impact on change. So will um, people who are allowed to 
allowed to get away with not enacting behavioural changes. Mm -hmm. So you might have a restructuring where everyone has to move their desk except one person because they have a relationship with the boss. That actually has a much more powerful um, motivator on whether change gets embedded or not, Mm -hmm. much more so than, you know, changing the business processes, the guidelines or giving people system training. So I use that idea of symbolism a lot when I'm creating change. Um, the other thing I mentioned that was really important as anthropologists in creating change was that, um, as I said, people who are impacted by the change are most likely to be those who know how to best and manage it. Um, they have the answers as to what, what they need to do to prepare to be ready for the change, mm-hmm. how the change will um, look when it actually goes into um, a particular team or workplace. Um, it's only the people who are part of the culture that can actually change it. And so often what happens is I see a project team or external consultants or vendors in charge of change um, and the organisation effectively outsources that change. Um, So often we see those inside the culture who are not involved in designing or preparing or planning or giving feedback Um, or implementing the change, and those who are not part of the culture are the ones given the task of changing it. Mm. And what I see is that there needs to be a partnership. Obviously, an organisation needs to get in experts, technical experts, when they don't have the capability, Um, but the principle of using some of the social anthropology in change is that the technical expertise and leadership needs to work with the people within the organisation for it really to take off or for it really to change. And, you know, this means that the... As a social anthropologist, we understand that we don't actually have all the answers um, and we shouldn't. And it actually means that nobody has all the answers um, until we work together the experts externally with the people inside the organisation who know it until we share information and design and plan together. Mm. Um, And that's the best way to uh, create new behaviour. And it actually doesn't take that much time or effort, but it does require developing trust and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I talked about was um, was the idea of being iterative Um, So as social anthropologists, we know that organisations and whole um, countries and and societies are always in flux. Um, They're never actually standing still um, or fixed for any moment in time. They're always developing, reacting internally and externally to their environment. So what we need to do or what we do is we plan based on what we know now We implement and then we see how the organisation reacts. Mm. Which way does it go? Do people like this approach? Does it speak to them? Does it motivate them? What new barriers arrive? What else is out there that we couldn't see before? What do we need to do next to keep this moving? And there isn't a right or wrong in social anthropology. There's just a what's working and what's moving us in the direction we want to go in. That's really interesting. So that lack of judgment Mm. in terms of of the progress of the change. Yes. Which is very much a dominant mindset around change, you know, um, that ultimately can become really disempowering. Absolutely. Because it creates fear. Yeah. And it undermines trust. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah, yeah. 
the the other thing around that iterativeness is that um, social anthropologists famously famously say that we know the map is not the territory. Mm. So that means you can have a plan, a, a business plan, a project plan, change plan, and the plan can tell us which direction to take, <clears throat> excuse me, and what might be there, but how we experience it, we won't know until we get there. So dingoes and crocodiles can't be mapped. Um, how hard it is to actually climb a hill can't be mapped, although we can know that there's a hill there. Um, how a group of stakeholders will react to a plan is, is unknown until we begin to execute it. Mm. And maybe they have a better one. And maybe yeah. they know where the crocodiles are yeah. better than we do. And maybe they know you don't actually have to climb the hill and they can direct you to the tunnel that they've already made through it. Yeah, yeah. So it's important to be iterative mm. and actually include the people um, you're working with to achieve the change when mm. you're executing cool. it. So it makes me wonder, given the emphasis on symbols and language and making of meaning, how does a social anthropologist look at the change management profession? <laughs> so what, what you know, because yeah. we're so <clears throat> loaded in jargon yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot of conflict around the jargon, you know, we yeah. should use the term change management. No, we need to replace the term change management. Um, yeah. nobody can manage change, et cetera, et cetera. So mm. how does a social anthropologist make sense of the domain of the change management profession? Yeah, it's really tricky. I, I try and talk about change management without ever using the word change management mm. because I try and talk about um, the fact that uh, what, what, it, what it actually means. It, it means that people need to stop doing one thing, they need to exist in the chaotic in-between spot and they need to take it the first steps. Um, and I'm, sometimes I really challenge um, people to do things like one of my favourite questions is, can you tell me what this change is about without using the word transformation or system or the name of the software <laughs> that you're implementing. Because really, if we're talking about the software or the systems or the transformation, we're talking about the solution or the new world. We're not talking about the change. And the change is the difference between where we are now and the new world, which we all want to get to, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff in between there that we need to manage as humans. Mm. Um, and again, it's not just about writing down all your new business processes. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I'd like to get away from the word solution um, and, I, and I, I think for me <clears throat> it's easy to get confused and lost in jargon and sometimes I think when you have a few different people with different perspectives in a room all talking about change and they could be the project manager, they could be a business sponsor, change person, a BA, um, you know, or even several different change managers, you're often... There's often about three or four different languages going on all talking about the same thing and it can be quite confusing for a change manager who I think is the one that needs to bring everybody together. Um, and I always default to the word people. Mm. I, just, I just always think where, where is the word people in all of this and where are the people in all of this? Mm. Um, if I can focus on that and get people to think about that, that's when I think they start managing the change. Nice. Nice. 
So I, I guess the other really contentious issue in the change management world, which might be interesting to get your view on, is this tension between <coughs> change management and organisational development. Mm. Um, so for those unfamiliar with the, the change world, there has been a, a growing tension, if you like, between those that practice change management as opposed to those that practice organisational development. And you've got a whole range of views as to what's necessary, you know. And you know, from my perspective, I don't think you can do good project change management unless you are addressing organisational development aspects of the piece. Mm -hmm. um, there's yeah. a criticism that those that work purely in OD... <coughs> are not sharp enough in terms of business acumen and business results that change mm -hmm. project change managers are. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so again, as a <laughs> making sense of things, which I see social anthropology really in that space, what do you make of that <clears throat> divide? Yeah. Well, once again, I think it's a divide between people who see change management as people-based and people who see change management as being something else, I don't know, Process system or, and process, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that there's that's just that's the divide. Um, and I think you summarised it well, Jen, in terms of what the divide is. Um, I, I, yeah, I struggle a lot with this. You know, project change management versus organisational change management. To me, it doesn't make any sense. If there's a change, there's a change. What is it? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if it, it's still people needing to stop doing one thing, needing to be supported while they transition and needing to take steps in the new world, mm. um, whatever, you know, gets you through that is 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 um, what I consider managing the change. And I think both areas have something to offer. Um, I, I come from an OD perspective yep. and I think that's, helps you to really focus on change rather than the whole kind of business and process side. But I think you're right. What happens is people traditionally in OD and HR have not focused enough mm -hmm. on, the, on the reality of what it means for a business to implement uh, a new way of working. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been very heavily on the people side and it's been seen as kind of holding back. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's really valuable for change managers to have worked on projects deep in the business. Most of my career I have been hired by line managers who mm -hmm. actually have to implement the change in their area because they're the ones that really need to um, <clears throat> meet three monthly targets, get stuff happening, make sure the finances add up. Um, and uh, so I think you do need that, that kind of real deep business knowledge as well. Um, but again, if you focus too much on that, that's I often come into conflict with people who are just focusing on that and don't want to build in the time it takes for humans to actually do all the, the things they need to do to get on board and adopt the change. Fantastic. So we had um, a wealth of of value in this chat, Bronte. Thank you so much. So I'm I'm thinking Thank at you. the moment, I'm thinking of the power of symbols and meaning <laughs> and language. I'm thinking of the power of the people going through change, being the creator of the change or mm. involved in the change, and the power of iterations in mm. our change practice. I think um, you gave us a real gift in your challenge to answer what 
the changes without using the terms transformation or system or the vendor name. What a brilliant challenge. Um, for those of you listening, I'll uh, be putting some summary notes into the, the write-up on this change chat. Bronte, if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn is the best link yes. to way, way to catch up yeah, with you. absolutely. And, and find out more, I will put that hyperlink into the notes. But for now, Bronte Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you, Jen. If you enjoyed this change chat, then do share with your colleagues and friends. You can find more at conversationsofchange.com.au, at Jen Fram on Twitter, or Conversations of Change on the Facebook.